This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. We respond to all people with genuine love and mercy, even though that's not the same of celebrating what everyone does. We love everybody. We pick them up. We help them up. Second, the sheer grace of the gospel means that there's no spiritual superiority among people. There's just not. Whatever sin you struggle with is sin before God, and it's of the same measure. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. My name's Aaron, and you're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. We're in a series that Pastor Jeff has called, My Friend Has Questions. He'll be working his way through various passages of scripture as he answers different questions from his church's community. Whether it's your friend or you, this series may help you address some of those big questions. Here's Pastor Jeff now with today's message on acceptance. We're in an interesting series. My friend has questions. And I made a commitment to you that I would take the questions that you sent in and I would take the most popular ones and I would deal with them. So I'm going to do that. Now I'm preaching through some selected text. And when you do a series like this, usually, you know, we come and we have a text that we're going through and then we go through it verse by verse. And then we relate it to how it applies to our lives. And we do that because we believe the Bible is ultimately the word of God. It's our roadmap. It tells us how we ought to live, but it also gives us great encouragement about what's coming, the past, the present, future, puts it all into God's story, and then we're able to see the bigger picture. To start the conversation about the question that was asked me this week, I had a young girl, 16 years old, come to see me not too long ago. You could tell when she came into my office, her hands were just shaking. She was so nervous about being and talking to Pastor Jeff. And when they come in like that, I'm just, I, I just want to set them at ease really quickly. Uh, but she was very nervous. She had written down some things that she wanted to say. And I tried to, uh, to calm her a little bit. And then as she started to unfold her story, and uh, I'm not going to use any names, not anything like that, but my heart just broke. She said, Pastor Jeff, I, I, I struggle because I have an attraction to same sex. And I'm, I, 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 I'm attracted to, to other, other girls. And uh, I don't know what to do about it. I, I told my parents, and they didn't respond very well. And uh, I'm hurting because I don't want to hurt my parents, but I don't want to lie to them and just tell them something I think they want to hear. And I'm just going through all this emotional stuff. I know I'm, I believe in Jesus. I follow the word. I know that there's a, a dichotomy going on here. There's a contradiction. And I just wonder, man, would you... Could you give me some answers to some questions and could you pray with me? And man, my heart just melted for her, trying to discover who she is, trying to make sense of all this and feeling like her, her family's abandoned her to some degree, feeling like she doesn't know who she can share this with. The first thing that hit me is I was so glad that she felt she could come to me, her pastor, and that she would be loved. And I just I, I said, okay, we're making progress here. And so... I moved over in a chair next to her, and I answered some of her questions. She had very well-thought-out questions. I prayed with her, and man, 
it just reminded me how real this question and this issue is. I told you I would not avoid the hard question, so I'm not. And here's the question, probably the most popular question we received in all of these. My friend has a question emails. It goes like this. Pastor Jeff, how does the church view homosexuality? Is it a sin? Why is there so much hate? Now, when I'm asked this question, I address it from three points of view. First of all, the ultimate objective, our authority, understand this. So just right from the get-go, please understand something, that when you ask a pastor this, he's going to come at it from what he believes to be the objective word of God. In other words, we as Christ followers believe that God is real, that he's delivered uh, us from sin through his son, Jesus Christ, and that he's revealed himself through not only Christ as revelation, but he's also communicated his will to the world through what we call the scriptures. Now, if you're one of, a person who doubts the validity of Scripture, that's another sermon for another place. I spent basically 20 years in apologetics trying to discover if I could be a Christ follower or not. The only thing I'll say is this. You can have great assurance that what you're reading today is an accurate reflection of what was originally written. We have so many manuscripts in antiquity that we know when you put the Bible up against any other book written in antiquity... This is the most accurate. So what you're reading today is an accurate reflection of what you originally written. So when people tell you the Bible's been changed, sorry, good statement, it's just false, and it proves you don't know how science and literary antiquity is measured. It is a science. It's not an art. We can know what we read today is what was originally written. Now, having said that, I approach this topic by pointing out three things, and there are three stories with which you're familiar. The first story is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember the context? Somebody comes to Jesus and says, who is my neighbor? They're religious people trying to trick him. And Jesus tells this story according to Luke 10 verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. This is a 17 mile road that descends some 3,300 feet. So it's a great place to wait behind the bushes and the trees and rob people. It was a notorious road for, for robbers. They stripped him of the clothes, his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. And then Jesus says, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, now just stop for a second. A priest, okay, that's like the lead pastor. So let's take me. I'm walking down, I don't know, Mount Baldy. And somebody's been robbed and stripped and laying there for half dead. And Jesus says, Jeff Vines walks by, doesn't do a thing. And then he says, a Levite walks by. Now a Levite is the right-hand man to the priest in the temple. So Jeff Mines walks by, doesn't do a thing. And then Jeremiah Mullen, he walks by. He doesn't do anything either. Or Del Morgan, he walks by. Nothing happens. Then he said, a Samaritan. Now, he doesn't just go to another person in the church. He goes to the people that the Jews believed were at the very bottom of the spiritual barrel. So these are the worst of the worst. And Jesus says, he walks by and came where the man was. And when he saw the man, took pity on him. Went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, bought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took two denarii, small amount of money, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you might have had. And then Jesus looks at the religious guys and says, which do you think, which of the three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the only way he could the one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now the question is, go and do what likewise? Go and have mercy and love and care and concern for those that you even think are at the very bottom of the spiritual barrel. All people, love all people, have mercy on all people. 
the, the biblical message is that all Christians are duty-bound to love their neighbors. Who's my neighbor? Everyone. People who don't agree with your faith, people who don't agree with your beliefs, people who are different age, different culture, people who don't have the same religion or faith system, even people who politically disagree with you. <laughs> so, Democrats, you've got to love the Republicans. Republicans, you've got to love the Democrats. So much so that if one of them was injured, you would help them up. The point of Scripture is that we are supposed to, this valley is supposed to be better for our having been here. We're supposed to make this a place where no one fears for their lives. Whereas there is the free marketplace of ideas that you can state your belief in public without having to be concerned somebody's going to kill you. So we love people who disagree with us. We're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We're a light in a dark world. So number one, how do I respond to the question, Pastor Jeff, how does the church view homosexuality? Is it a sin and why so much hate? The first thing I say, first of all, we respond to all people with genuine love and mercy. No matter who they are and no matter how strongly they disagree with us. Now, let me just give a quid pro quo here. Love does not mean that we celebrate what people do. If my son Delaney comes home at night and he's high and he's drunk and he's howling at the mood and he's naked, which has never happened, but if it did, if it did, it would break my heart. He's my son. I would be so sad. I would not celebrate what he just did. There would be reprimand. But it would be in love. I'd come alongside him and say, son, this kind of behavior will cause disintegration. You will destroy yourself. Do you understand? But the way we respond to everyone is through genuine love and mercy and concern. And we pick everyone up who's hurting, no matter who they are. My second response is that the gospel of Jesus Christ means that we are saved by sheer grace, which means there can be no superiority. The gospel removes any kind of spiritual hierarchy. There aren't some people on this spiritual plane and others here. We're all saved by sheer mercy and grace. Peter came to Jesus, another story with which you'll be familiar in Matthew 18, and said, Jesus, how often do I have to forgive somebody? And Peter said, seven times? I can do seven times, but girlfriend, I can't do eight. <laughs> how many times? And Jesus says, I'll tell you. Seven times 70. What he does is he takes the number seven and the number 10, both mean completion or perfection, and he multiplies them together. What he's saying is you forgive as long as it takes. Jesus said, by the way, let me tell you a parable. So in verse 23, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And he began to, a settlement as he meets this young man who owes him an, an exorbitant amount of money. The Bible says he owes him 10,000 bags of gold. Now, that's the, uh, that's, let me tell you how big that debt is in that time. That would be the gross national product of a nation. So he owes him a lot. What it tells us is that first, this master who the servant serves is a, a master of staggering generosity, but it also shows you that the servant who's borrowed this much money is incredibly uh, uh, irresponsible with money. And so... The Bible says that he's not able to pay the master. So the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all of that be sold and repay the debt. So because he's been clumsy with money, now he's losing everything, his family, his house, everything. But the Bible says in verse 26 that the servant fell on his knees before him. 
By now you must know that the master is God. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay everything back. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now that's amazing. What's really interesting about this passage is he says, be patient and I'll pay everything back. There's no way he can pay everything back. It's impossible. The master knows that, but the master forgives him. So what does he do? How does he respond to that incredible grace? When the servant went out, he found a fellow servant that owed him 100 silver coins. You know how much that is? Lunch money. Lunch money. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. The fellow servant fell to his knees, begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back, which he actually could pay him back, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had that man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. In other words, they saw, wow, how can you, the recipient of a staggering measure of grace, not go out and forgive this small little debt from your brother? So the master called the servant in. He said, you wicked servant. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? So in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, which would be never. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So what's the point? Number one is because you and I, as Christ's followers, recognize the mountain of moral debt that we've been forgiven, we're able to give the little molehills of debt when people offend us. That's the natural cause and effect of a true Christ follower. We know that God forgave us so much, we can give, forgive anything anybody does to us. But there's a second point that we often forget. The other point is that nobody's debt to God is bigger or smaller than anybody else's. Now, you and I may compare our debt in the human experience, but if you struggle with losing your temper and another struggles with honesty and another struggles with sexual sin, the guy that struggles with sexual sin is not somehow worse than the previous two. Our debt before God is a mountain of moral debt that we've been forgiven. And so the true Christ follower knows that we're all in a boat and it's sinking. And without the grace of God, there's no way we could be pulled back up. So number one, we respond to all people with genuine love and mercy, even though that's not the same of celebrating what everyone does. We love everybody. We pick them up. We help them up. Second, the sheer grace of the gospel means that there's no spiritual superiority among people. There's just not. Whatever sin you struggle with is sin before God, and it's of the same measure. Here's the third part. The Bible, Christ followers believe, and let me say it again. I may say some things you may not agree with. It's okay for you to be wrong. <laughs> That's just a little fun. Come on, it's a little fun. I'm not that arrogant to think that I know everything. I'm simply saying, for me to address this, I'm coming at it from the, from the Christian position. So at least understand what the Christian position is, okay? And here's the third part of my response. We Christ followers believe that the Bible is God's playbook for how to live according to the way God designed us. Now, let me, let me, let me show you a few things. Let me show you. These are two of the cars that I drove in my young... This was the first car I owned. What do you think about that? Starfire GT, baby. My first car cost me 1200 bucks, and I borrowed the money from the bank, and I paid it off in a year, $100 for 12 months. I love that car. It rode crooked because it had been wrecked before I bought it from a lady out in the country. It leaked antifreeze in the passenger side, so when I went on date, my date's feet would get soaked in antifreeze. I had an eight-track tape player in it. I love that thing. 
The second car I drove is when I went to Africa, I drove an Isuzu pickup truck. I didn't like the vehicle, but it was more pragmatic. I had to haul a lot of stuff, people and things. So I bought this diesel Isuzu pickup truck. And it had zero power. If you were going to pass on the motorway, you better be going downhill and be gathering momentum and speed. Otherwise, you're just going to stay in the lane forever. I hated that car, but I, it was pragmatic. Now, here's the thing about both those cars. I did not take care of them. I, I don't know how to take care of cars. My father-in-law thinks that it is the eighth wonder of the world that my cars ever run. You know, I've never changed oil in any car. Do you know that I don't know how? You say, well, you could learn. I don't want to. I don't like to get under the hood of I just don't like it. It's not me. If that makes me less a man, I'm sorry. I don't like that. And so my cars tend to, well, let's put it like this. You know, when a light comes on the dashboard, I just think it's cute. I, <laughs> hey, look, a light. Uh, I'm just not good with cars. And yet God has given me incredible grace and mercy with them. They seem to run. Uh, just keep on running. Some people treat their cars poorly, and you can notice it on the outside. Here's a couple of guys here. That car's been treated poorly. And then you got this one. You know, sometimes we just don't take care of our cars. Then, now say with me, then you have cars that look okay on the outside, but they have the name Ford written on them somewhere. <laughs> so, so even though you think they're well put together, a Ford is a violation of car design from the will of God. So sooner or later, it will disintegrate. So here's, here's the point. Here's the point we make. We believe as Christ followers that we are created in the image of God, and the God who created us gave us an owner's manual. And if we live by that owner's manual within those parameters, we will have the abundant life. We will have so much of the life Christ came to bring, both physically and the soul, the, the health of a soul, of a spiritual, the formation of a soul. But if we violate design, then it is the Christ follower's belief that you do so at your own peril. That if you get outside the parameters, then disintegration and death begin to creep in. The Bible tells us, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, in other words, if all the decisions you make are to please the flesh, you're going to have some desires that are not fulfilled appropriately, or they're not, it's not appropriate to fulfill them. Sometimes I want to smack you. It wouldn't be appropriate. I mean, I really feel it strongly. It's real, but I don't. Are there any of you, just quickly, are there any of you that think that I've never looked at a woman lustfully? Then if that's what you think about me, you're living in a dream world. I am a guy. And the issue is what do I do with that thought and how do I respond to it? So there are desires. Do you think that I did not have a desire to sleep with my girlfriend before we were married. You think that's not there? What do you think, I'm dead? <laughs> so there are feelings and desires you have that have to be fulfilled by legitimate means or they go outside the parameters. So the real question, I'm not gonna finish the scripture, well, I will. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction, that's disintegration. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. So if you're governed by a transformed spirit, you're not only going to protect the healing of the soul, but also the physical body. So the real question in this whole endeavor is this. 
Not what does God's playbook say about homosexuality. That's unfair. Why are you highlighting that one? The real question is, what does God's playbook say about sexual immorality? What does it say about adultery and pornography and fornication, sex before marriage? What does it say about all sexual sins? And that, that's a very simple one from a biblical perspective. Now, again, if you're in the room and I'm ticking you off, stay. At least hear the Christian position. If you get up and walk out, you're not going to know. So be educated in the Christian position. The Christian position is this. First of all, we love all people. Those who disagree with us, we love them. We love them. Okay? We help all people. We love all people. We want to create a safe place for all people. Now, the Bible says that sex is between a man and a woman in the context of marriage for the extended commitment. The Bible says that only when there's a physical, emotional, economic, and spiritual commitment to each other, sexual intimacy is not only allowed, but it's encouraged. My daughter was sitting in the service this morning, and she was sitting with a guy. I don't know him yet, but I looked right over in his direction. And I said, you know, if a, if a young man comes and asks to marry my daughter, the first thing I'm going to say is, are you a believer? And the second thing is, uh, are you going to protect her and provide for her economically? And if the answer is no, get out. And I'll even have my little t-shirt on that says, guns don't kill people, fathers with daughters kill people. And, you know, I'll, I'll flash the t-shirt at him just so he makes sure. The Bible is clear in Genesis 2. It says this, therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife. They become one flesh. The two of them, the man and his wife, were naked, but now they felt no shame. Why? Why? Because they're in the parameters. So polygamy, adultery, fornication, pornography, homosexuality is seen all as a violation of God's will and design. And quite frankly, the problem that the gay and lesbian community has with us Christians is, why are you so willing to highlight what they do and never talk about what you're doing? See, every, every weekend, I know that where there's this many people, and you got 6,000 people gathering on three campuses, here's what's going on. I guarantee there are people in the room sleeping with their girlfriend, they're not married to them. I guarantee there are people living together who aren't married. I guarantee there are people who are committing adultery or either thinking about committing adultery or those who are in an emotional adulterous affair. I guarantee there are people addicted and watching pornography. So the gay community looks at us and says, well, wait, why do you only preach and talk? Well, that's what I've tried to avoid all of my life. I don't like just dealing with one sexual sin. Let's deal with them all. There's no one worse than any other. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. I may say some things you may not agree with. It's okay for you to be wrong. That's just a little fun. Come on, it's a little fun. I'm simply saying, for me to address this, I'm coming at it from the, from the Christian position. So at least understand what the Christian position is, okay? And here's the third part of my response. We Christ followers believe that the Bible is God's playbook for how to live according to the way God designed us. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. Today. Today.
Today with Jeff Vines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.